The scripture today is based on blind Bartimaeus. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with the large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called him. They called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Thank you, Paul. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, the shortest and most direct of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begin the New Testament. And they tell us the story of Jesus. They tell us what he did, how he behaved, how he interacted with people, what his purpose was, what his character was like. And we're coming here to the climax, towards the climax of the gospel. We're in chapter 10. We've seen Jesus um, begin his ministry, get baptized, begin to teach and gather disciples. We've seen him use miracles to show the disciples exactly who he is. And we've seen at the beginning of the at the middle of the gospel, how when Peter uh, confesses, admits that Jesus is the Messiah, the whole gospel pivots, and Jesus begins to travel from the north of Galilee down south towards Jerusalem, where he's going to go to the cross, as he tells them three different times. And so here we're coming to the end of that journey. Verse 46 there. They came to Jericho. So Jericho is about 18, 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It is the last stopping place for pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem. So he's been traveling south. This is the last stop before Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. So this is the last leg. He's now ascending through the mountains towards Jerusalem. And notice that you know he started off with a, a group of disciples. Now that he has a large crowd marching with him. There must have been a buzz there. What was going to happen when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem? Some people thought he would become some kind of a military leader, that he'd throw off the Roman occupation, that he would challenge the leadership of Jerusalem, that he would call down fire and goodness knows what and destroy Jerusalem. What was going to happen? It must have been an exciting journey. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside bedding, begging. So this is the last spot on the road to Jerusalem, a great place for a beggar to be and beg for alms from people on their way to visit God, presumably in a mind to be generous as they were asking for God's generosity. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. David was the first great king of uh, Israel. As you just heard from Gary, he's the one who uh, designed the temple. He didn't get to build it. His son did that. But he was the one who had the vision to build the temple. He was the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. He was the one who united Israel, a man after God's own heart. Really the one that Israel looked to as the exemplar of what a king was. He's also the one that wrote most of the Psalms. And so son of David is a messianic title. It was believed that the Messiah, that is the anointed one of God, the Christ, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, both mean the same thing. The one sent by God to redeem his people. And so son of David would have been heard by Jewish ears as the Messiah, a descendant of David, the lineage of David, the king returning to Jerusalem, the capital. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Why did they rebuke him? Because they were embarrassed. This was a call that Jesus is the Messiah. The king is returning. To many Jewish ears, this would have been blasphemy. If you remember, even the disciples who had been with Jesus for three years didn't really understand who he was or what he was going to do in Jerusalem, although he kept telling them again and again. Jesus stopped and said, call him. This is remarkable. Last step of Jesus' journey, he has been on this determined march to Jerusalem. This is the last leg. And yet he's not so full of himself that he doesn't have time to stop for this beggar on the side of the road. So they call to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Jumped to his feet. Hope beyond hope. What a miracle for him that somebody is paying attention. Hope in a life of darkness. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. What do you want? Notice that Jesus does not uh, reduce Bartimaeus to his ailment. There's no condescension here, no assumption, no rush. Jesus has all the time in the world to give to him, and he gives Bartimaeus the dignity of defining himself and what his need is. And by the way, in passing, just notice this. You get glimpses again and again as you go through the Gospels of what Jesus' character actually was, how he treated people. You know, oftentimes arguments about Christianity are big, sweeping philosophical or theological arguments in the, in the abstract, ethics and history. But it is the personal Christ, the encounter with the personal character of Christ, that is the key. Reading the Gospels for the person of Jesus, for the character to learn something about how he actually was 
is the essence of learning to meet him. C.S. Lewis points out that in all the literature of the world, there is no greater personality, no greater encounter than the one you make with Jesus in the Gospels, if you read with attention to who he is. What does the blind man need? He needs sight. Think of what it must have meant back then to be blind. With no support system, no welfare system, no doctors, no social workers, nothing. Where you had to sit by the side of the road as the world went by, calling out into the darkness. When I was a pastor in Manhattan, um, I came to know Scott, who was a blind man. He was in his 30s. He'd gone blind as the result of having AIDS. And I met him at a press service. And he frightened me. He was actually terrifying the first time I met him. I've always valued self-sufficiency and autonomy. And the idea of becoming blind, at the time I was a little over 30, the idea of becoming suddenly blind in Manhattan was absolutely terrifying. He was a needy man. He was an angry man. He was the most lonely man that I ever met. And he asked me for help. You know, I was a, a pastor at the time. And he lived in the very north of uh, Manhattan in the Heights. But he liked to go to an organic grocery uh, down in Midtown. And he would go to different fellowship groups and prayer groups around town. There was one called City Lights, a monthly prayer and worship meeting. Uh, Redeemer sponsored it. He asked me to take him to it, and I was completely trapped. <laughs> I had to say yes, just out of guilt. You know, technically, I was his pastor. And I didn't want to do it. Uh, my shriveled, selfish soul rejected everything about his situation. But I was trapped. I had to be a pastor, pure guilt. And so I started meeting him. He would come down from the Heights. I would meet him at the Union Square subway station. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a sprawling, multi-leveled maelstrom. It's just people and noise, echoes. Even when you can see, it's confusing and a little overwhelming. To be blind, to come to that place on a subway, blind, and try to negotiate and navigate through there, was just an absolute horror. So over a series of months, I got to know Scott. And he was by far the most faithful man that I'd ever met. He needed people for everything. There were a couple of fellowship groups up in the Heights who helped him, uh, helped him with shopping and helped him with cleaning, helped him with a lot of stuff. But still, his loneliness, his neediness, it was just everything for him was hard. It's hard for anybody to get around Manhattan and live in Manhattan. Hard for him more than anybody that I ever met. And yet of all the people I knew, he was the, the most faithful in attending any Christian event, any fellowship group, any prayer group, any worship group, the monthly City Lights group. Why? because he was desperate. Think of how hard it would be to live blind. 
Think about Bartimaeus. Think about Scott. Everything is distant. People look away. You don't even know if they're there, if they're paying attention to you. Bartimaeus must have sat by the side of that street, that path, who knows for how long, and listened to the noise of other people's lives as they went by. What would it have been like for him? Utter darkness. What hope did he have? What purpose could he generate for his life? What was his significance? It must have been so lonely. And yet here he is, calling out, hopefully, into the darkness of the world, calling into this bustle of pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem. He might have been calling for a long time. He must have felt very small, very insignificant, very out of the center of things, the periphery of life. What did he need? What was most important for him? What was it most important for Scott? One thing they both had was need, a desperate need and longing. At the depths of their soul, they needed God. They needed God to be real. They had no other choice or purpose or resource. They were truly desperate men, and that desperation made them men of faith because they had nothing else to put their faith into. Now, in the world, to be needy, to be desperate, is a very negative thing. But spiritually, it's the most positive thing of all because it reflects a fundamental reality about human beings. We need God. We might not know it, we might deny it, but it is the fundamental reality of our lives and of God. We need God for any of us to exist at all, to be alive, for there to be anything. God first must be there. Now, I think this is something you don't hear too much about. But what is the fundamental thing, the most important thing about God? His love, his graciousness, his forgiveness, his power, his knowledge? No. The fact that he exists at all. The remarkable thing, that there is someone that you can call out to in the darkness, that who will hear you and can hear you and will be there. That's what Bartimaeus needed. It's what Scott needed. It's what all of us need. You know, there is an ancient and universal question. Why are we here? What is it all about? And different people at different times have tried to answer it differently. Ancestor stories, myths and sagas, national origin stories, heroic achievement, ideals, different philosophies, religions, codes of conduct, all attempts to explain life and give it meaning. But there's an issue at the bottom of every attempt. What starts everything? What is the first cause? 
Where did we and everything else come from? Why do we exist at all? And the Bible has an answer to that. The Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was already there at the beginning of time. God created. There was nothing that existed until God made it. He is the source of everything that is. God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, everything up there, and the earth, the world in which we live, comes from God. He made it. One thing Einstein taught us is that time and space are connected. You need space to put things into. You need time for them to move. In the beginning, God created time. Heavens and earth. Space. It all came from him. He is the source. He is the beginning. He is the reason. But who created God? Where did God come from? What caused God? God caused God. For there to be anything at all, there must be something, someone, who has as an attribute existence. The uncaused caused. You know, science right now has gone all the way back to the Big Bang, but the question is what came before? What caused the Big Bang and everything? Who knows? But the Bible says that God is the reason for himself. Self-existent. The theological word for this, by the way, is aseity. It's a Latin word. A, from, and se, oneself. God exists for and from and because of who he is. Now that probably sounds self-referential, right? He is because he is. But for there to be anything at all, being, existence, the fact that there is something rather than nothing, requires something, somebody, somewhere to have existence. And the Bible says that is God. If you go to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, when Moses meets God in the burning bush, he asks him, who are you? Who shall I say to the Israelites you are? Who shall I say sent me to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. I am. That is the Hebrew verb for existence, to be. God is saying, I am. I exist. I'm not a noun. I'm a verb, the verb of existence. I am the source. I am the beginning. I am the origin. I am the reason. And I am the one who sends you to the Israelites. The psalmist 
says 139, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My favorite one is from Paul when he's trying to explain Jesus to the Greeks because the Greeks loved philosophy. They were searching for reasons to believe. And Paul says this to them. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. Our existence is grounded in God. We are sustained by him. We are not independent. We're not self-sufficient. From moment to moment, second to second, we are sustained by God. And without him, we don't exist at all. He is our creator. We are his creations. So what does that mean? It means at the, be at the base of who we are is God. We can never escape his presence, and we will never be away from him. He is the one who gives our lives significance. He is also the one that gives us existence. What does that mean? When I first learned about this um, when thinking about prayer, I had got a little frustrated with my prayer life, which seemed to be basically an extension of children asking Father Christmas for gifts. And it was a little unsatisfying. And so I started to study prayer, read through the history of the church, and particularly the mystics and the monks who spent their lives in prayer. And one of the things they talk about is a kind of prayer where instead of asking for stuff, you sort of empty yourself. You quiet in your mind, this requires habit, by the way. It's a little like meditation, where you let go of distractions and thoughts, just the buzz and hum of daily life in your head. And you release it. One exercise they recommend, by the way, is to think of your consciousness as sort of like a river with all the cluttered with boats and debris. And every time one of these boats or the debris comes to mind, you just say, Lord, let it go. And let it float away. And you keep doing this over hours and weeks and months. And it's, you simplify yourself. The distractions of the world begin to form, fall away. It becomes very, a, a very relaxing place to be, by the way. It's very like meditation. But the goal, the reason that Christians have prayed this way, is that underneath all the clutter, there is God. When everything else is removed, God remains. And rather than an intellectual idea about who God is, you get a direct appreciation, a direct encounter, an unmediated meeting with your creator. That's the goal. One theologian talks about the mysterium tremendum, coming face to face, actually not face to face, 
because it's in you. Coming into direct contact with your creator. That's the goal. And this idea of aseity is the underpinnings of that whole approach to God. God exists, and therefore we exist. He is our source. So how does that connect with this story? It's all about need. We saw that chapter 10, and this, by the way, is the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins with the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? How can I become part of your kingdom? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 10, by the way, is all about the kingdom of heaven. And here, the last story of chapter 10, instead of a rich young man, we have a poor, blind beggar. And which one ends up following Jesus? Verse 52. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The rich young ruler had everything he needed materially to thrive in this world. He was self-sufficient. He was autonomous. There was nothing needy or desperate about him. He could take care of himself. He didn't really need Jesus or God. And the result is that wealth, that self-sufficiency prevents him from following Jesus. What does Bartimaeus have? Absolutely nothing. And therefore, he knows he needs God. He knows he's got no other choice. His faith is pure because there's nothing else to put faith into. It's singular, and it's focused on Jesus, and the result is he follows him. Go, says Jesus, but where does Bartimaeus go? He received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He goes with Jesus to Jerusalem. And by the way, it's striking. We know who he is, Bartimaeus. In the Gospel of Mark, in most of the Gospels, you don't get to hear the names of the people cured. There's one example, uh, Jarius, the synagogue leader. He must have been a famous person whose daughter Jesus heals and raises. But you don't hear the names of people that Jesus heals. They're on the move. The disciples are moving. Bartimaeus must have hung around. It is very likely, after he went up to Jerusalem, that he saw all the things that happened in Jerusalem and was and became a member of the early church. And that's why they continued to know him, and that's why they knew his name. He'd been given sight. He put his faith in Jesus, and he follows him to Jerusalem. What did he see? Well, he would have seen Jesus marching up the hill to Jerusalem, mobbed by crowds, and hailed as the returning king. The next thing that happens in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He would have seen Jesus' betrayal, trial, and rejection 
by the same mob, he would have seen a half-naked Jesus, whipped, blood raw, staggering through the streets with a, thorn of, a crown of thorns, carrying his own cross. He would have seen Jesus publicly crucified out on the trash heap outside of Jerusalem with criminals. And then perhaps, like all the disciples, Bartimaeus would have looked away as Jesus' body was carried off to the grave and darkness fell on the land. And you have three days of doubt and despair, a terrible dark night of the soul for all the followers. But though Jesus died, his body died, his spirit did not, because God cannot die. He is existence. He is the source of existence and being. An irrepressible, exuberant, overflowing fountain of life that will never stop, unquenchable, unending, eternal. Did Jesus rise? Yes, he did. Did Bartimaeus see him? Perhaps. The Bible doesn't say so. But hundreds of people in Jerusalem did. And the book of Acts returns to a refers to a company of 120 people in addition to the apostles who were the foundation of the early church. I think he saw him. He'd met Jesus. He'd followed him. He had faith. He had sight. I think he saw the risen Christ. I think he's risen, and he has risen himself with him now. What did it take? Faith in the reality and the existence of God. I've been in hospital, and I, I've watched a man die, and it's, it's horrible. The pain, the squalor, the misery, it's an absolute horror show. But the worst part, from my perspective watching, was the desperate loneliness of it. Watching a human body shut down, feeling a hand become unresponsive, have the voice that you knew silenced. To have ears that used to listen unhearing. To see the eyes turn inward. Every one of us is going to face that moment. Everything that we have will be taken away. And our bodies will shut down. And our feeling and our sight and our hearing, they will all be taken away. Even our last breath, there will be a last breath. It's a terrible fact of human life. But for Christians, there is a hope. In that darkness, in that last breath, there is a gospel, good news. And the promise is, when everything else is stripped away, God remains because he is our source, our foundation. In that last extremity, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus will be there. He's been there himself. He knows what it's all about, and he has triumphed over that last dark place, death. And he doesn't just commiserate. He doesn't just come alongside. He brings with him new life because he's the source of life. He is the source of our existence. And not a finite life, not a temporary life, 
unquenchable, abundant, eternal life. Because he's God, the source of everything that is. That is the promise of the Christian gospel. If you, like Bartimaeus, put your faith in Jesus, if you follow him, he will stay with you right to the very end, and that end will in fact become a new beginning, a new life, eternal, abundant life. That's why we worship him. That's why we're here when that beautiful day is outside, because the beauty of who he is is the beauty behind all the beauty that there is. Let's pray to God. Lord, we thank you that you are there, that you are our creator, the creator of all things, and we are your creatures. Lord, we thank you that through Christ you have shown that you love us, that through Christ you have come alongside of us, that through Christ you have prepared a way home to you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. We thank you and ask that you would show us what it means to have faith in him. We pray for that. Amen. Right now.